the Design Build Institute of America's Design Build Delivers podcast. I'm Kim Wright at DBIA's National Headquarters. We're going to give everyone a bit of a break from COVID-19 today, but we're going to talk about an issue that's still very relevant in this environment, resiliency. When we talked to Dr. Stephen Flynn from the Global Resilience Institute, no one had ever heard of COVID-19. And yet his message of preparing for the unexpected, looking beyond blue sky days and mitigating potential risk couldn't be more timely. We're gonna talk about resiliency. Let's start at the very beginning. You made a really interesting point about we've inherited this impressive infrastructure from our you know, generations previous, and yet we haven't been able to maintain it. Start there first. Where are we in that regard? Sure. We have a national crisis, and it is that the built infrastructure that our grandparents and great-grandparents built for us, with their ingenuity, their treasure, and sometimes their blood, you know, because it was uh, not a painless enterprise, but in any event, we're treating it like spoiled you know, grandkids or great-grandkids. We're not actually reinvesting in that infrastructure. You know, we, we treat it as essentially a legacy that we're owed, and we don't feel like, nor are we acting in ways that, that make us feel understand it's a legacy we need to pass on, and we need to upgrade it, we need to adapt it. And so the result is our infrastructure you know, is aging and not gracefully. And so we compound that with where we live and how we live is increasingly in dense urban areas, putting more pressure on those systems, on those infrastructure. And then we add a storm or we add, you know, some other event, accident or even malicious event like a 9-11 event, then things fail very, very badly. And this should be seen as an urgent national imperative to address. And when we talk about the losses that we're seeing, when we see these types of, of impacts, you know, we're seeing real today, right now, real economic impacts when there is an event, whether it's man-made or, or, or natural. Absolutely. I mean, it's in the, it's in the multi-billions per event uh, and the multiple events per year uh, that we're facing now versus a period from, let's like, say, 1965 to uh, 1985. You very rarely had an event that was more than a billion dollars in losses. I mean, there were big storms, there were earthquakes, but because we're so connected and interconnected and because the infrastructure itself is vulnerable, that when we have these storms, they're far more disruptive and destructive than they used to be. Let's talk about that interconnectivity. You know, it's so interesting because when you, 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 you talk about how when we, we built these resources, it made sense for everything, for efficiency's sake, to be close together, densely compacted, our trains, our rails, our roads, all working together. But that sets us up for a, a worse potential result. Absolutely. When if, if efficiency is our only goal, a couple of things typically happens. We look at redundancy as extra cost. Hey, we don't need that. You know, we'll be more efficient with less redundancy. And robustness or hardening, well, geez, that's extra cost too. So we should try to get less. And it's great for blue sky days. And it's great up until it's not great when things go wrong. And then we see usually catastrophic failure. And so the key here is that we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can think about efficiency as we must, but we also can think about the what ifs. And then based on this understanding of that risk, be able to put some best practices in place to mitigate. And when things fail, because they will, have good plans to be able to respond and recover. And technology is, while it's a great thing, I mean, I think you've done a terrific job of explaining there are downsides of being so interconnected from a technological perspective too. Information systems and all of that being completely connected and dependent. Sure, I think one that everybody really understands, probably not as deeply as they should, 
but is what happens when you lose power. I mean, you can face that when you're in a house. You know, you can't cook, you can't, the, the, the well, if you have a well, if you're not getting water, you know, into your here, you can't flush your toilets and so forth. So you get that without power, you know, you're really in trouble. But what we don't often understand is how integrated these systems are, where now increasingly they're relying on telecommunications, where they're access to the internet, where water provides coolant to allow energy to be produced, and I need fuel for a generator, and that has to be transported. So a gas station doesn't have backup generator. When you basically are knocked out with a storm and you go to get gas, they're, they're out of power too. So those interconnected, those interdependencies are key. But particularly something we are more and more concerned about in the resilient space is the rush to the internet of things, not because it doesn't have a lot of potential, it has enormous potential, but that most of the applications, most of the efforts are being done without really thinking through the downside or the darker side, that increasingly there's risk of cyber hackers, others who uh, will essentially target these systems and ways that could be you know, enormously disruptive, in some cases, destructive. Well, it's very, um, it's very appealing and sexy to do the gee whiz thing. Oh my gosh, look what we can do. Look what technology will let us do. Uh-oh. Exactly, and, and you know, the market re basically often reinforces that first user. And you know, this is an issue we've been facing for a while with things like code where, hey, let's just get the application out and we'll fix the bugs afterwards kind of thing, you know, because we have to get to market quickly. And that we'll think about it afterwards problem though, especially when we're in a built environment. Where we're, and so this is what's insane. You know, we still are, of course, doing major capital built projects that we hope will last 50 plus years, but we're not building it looking forward. You know, we tend to look backward. We use a 100-year or 500-year event as if that, world, that static world is with us today. We actually know that we're going to be facing a much more dynamic and more turbulent environment going forward. And the future of design, the future of engineering, is about forecasting the life cycle of your asset or your system and being able to bake in the kind of what-ifs that, uh, that allow it ideally to, within guardrails, because we can't do this with perfection when we're predicting, but basically be able to absorb the ideal risk and have a regenerative ability to come back. If we get it right, we should be able to accomplish efficiencies, but efficiency over its life cycle, not just in the moment. And to some degree, too, that just requires a little bit of vision and innovation, acknowledging maybe where you are, what are your potential risks, how do you build. I love the example, was it Boston, on the Boston shoreline. You know there's potentially going to be flooding in, a kind of, in an event. How do we use that lower level space? Exactly. The resilience focus is really important here that it's not all about necessarily hardening or redundancy, you know, which is really protection. Okay, some things you have to protect. If they're really valuable and you can't replace them, you can't move them, you've got to think about hardening them or having a spare. But for most things, if you talk about a hazard, you know, it can be whether it's a wind event or water event or even a drought or fire, uh, these things are going to have a beginning and an end. And so with water in particular, this is something the Dutch have really done is cutting edge. You know, the Dutch initially have worked, because most of the country is below sea level, right. so they've really have invested in this they for a while. They've lived it. <laughs> they live it. But their initial approach was try to build higher and higher walls, essentially against the water, including in the port of Rotterdam, one of the largest and most important seaports in the world. There's massive gates that will close to hold the sea, North Sea at bay. But they realized that's not going to work. And so for all these scenarios, especially with rising sea level. So now they basically call it's make way for the river, that the water is going to come in, let it go to places where it will not be disruptive. And essentially actually build open parkland where people can enjoy, but for the water to drain in those places, so the things that are really valuable are safeguarded. And of course, there were some that had to be relocated. 
And so one of the things that, of course, we do terribly in the United States is after we have a major event, we just put things back the way before. Mm -hmm. And what we really need to do is go, every, every event is an opportunity and must be seized for adaptation. And if it's in a flood zone and you really can't safeguard it, particularly when we talk about housing and so forth, we've got to have an incentive and means to essentially move people out of harm's way. We can't just keep essentially reinforcing exposure. Your mention of hardening made me think of, too, we back it up just a couple of steps. Resiliency, what is resiliency? I mean, resiliency can be defined in, in, in many different ways. Yeah, they're, they're, what's fascinating for me as somebody who runs a university-wide institute around resilience is with discovering that virtually every academic discipline has used resilience as a term of art, um, but they do use it in different ways. The roots of it are primarily from psychology. We think about somebody who's resilient, right, as somebody who's basically faced adversity, right. and they come back. And we often really admire that. And, and actually understanding what makes some people under the same stress more resilient than others. You know, what's that secret sauce? That's something that psychologists look at. Social scientists have looked at it at a community level, right? We see some communities, when they have an adverse event, they come together and they respond and recover. In others, whatever it was they were before, they get worse, they, they break down. So is there social capital that we can bring into there and understanding that? From an engineering side, it's often designed. How do I design something to withstand an earthquake, or withstand a flood event? That's a resilient structure. And then operationally, emergency managers often thought about resilience as coming back, bouncing back and recovery. So what we've done is mirror what actually has happened at the federal level to say it's really all of the above, it's a cycle. All right, that actually you want, and it should be organic. It's not a separate phase of effort. Resilience is both thinking and understanding risk in advance, and then ideally designing to be prepared for that risk and to mitigate that risk. But knowing that you can't ever have that perfect, being able to also have good plans to respond, to ideally reduce the consequences of a shock, and then plans to recover smarter adaptation built into that. So it feeds back into prevention and mitigation. And this is an ongoing organic effort. What you can see here is that you can't just assign these, you know, somebody, you do resilience and we're gonna go off and, you know, do design over here. It really has to be something that is not just, it has to be organic and it has to be shared. And getting there requires a lot of collaboration. Which is exactly what, as I'm listening to that description, that is, really the, one of the core values of design build, the idea that, that we are going to build an entire road structure as a team looking at the entire cycle, all of it together, rather than one piece at a time. I mean, it's, it seems a natural fit for design builders to be talking about resiliency. Yeah, well, I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to come to the conference and to talk to this community is precisely that I know this message would not blow their circuits. You know, this is a natural act. But, oh, you know, my, my plea is that we even expand that, that every one of the folks in this community feel as they must be almost evangelical about doing this work and, and to push beyond it, bring more collaboration, more engagement. The core issue as well is also to look at this whole issue of risk going forward. And so it's not just the optimal design done in the most cost-effective, efficient way, that's so important, but are we designing it right for the function that it needs to provide over the projected life cycle? And that's really, that means I have to have a much higher degree of risk literacy. I have to understand not just hazards, but how hazards will play out across that design and have it built it in those ways. So I think that, that ideally is a, hopefully a mission or part of the mission here that uh, the community will embrace because we really need the best architects, we need the best planners, we need the best engineers bringing their talent to this challenge. Design builders also 
have an appreciation, I think, or the fact that what they're building, what they're, what they're contributing has a community impact. And I, I think when you talk about resiliency, you, you made the point that when these events happen, they're really hardly ever just local. They have, they have effects that go well beyond what you might think of um, on first glance. Absolutely. And for instance, I use these example of the largest natural disaster in terms of loss of life in, in U.S. history actually took place on September 9th in uh, Galveston, Texas. Uh, with, back then, when there was no warning about incoming hurricanes, it turned out a hurricane came with about 15 foot of storm surge, and the highest point in Galveston Island was about eight feet. The estimates are about 8,000 people perished that day. They were washed out, drowned, and gone. It took 24 hours for the rest of the country to know what it had happened. Because mm. the one with the casualty was the telegraph line that sure. got knocked down. And so while you would not have wanted to be in Galveston, Texas that day, for the rest of the country, they were largely unaffected. And that fast forward to Hurricane Harvey that comes ashore, you know, in 100 plus years later, loss of life is really quite modest. But the disruption and cost, not just to the Harris County area, where around Houston metropolitan area, where we have millions of people living, but all the way up for the rest of the country because the Houston Shipping Channel was disrupted. And that's the home of the petrochemical industry for the nation. And so people were paying prices up at gas pumps all over the country because of a hurricane hitting Texas. And so that recognition that we're all in this together and therefore we should have an incentive to collaborate is sort of the heart of the resilience imperative. But it also does something very important at the community level. It helps to build the kind of social capital because you really want is to bring the faith-based organization, the volunteer organizations, neighborhoods together. There's this real cool thing that the folks in San Francisco started doing, the emergency managers. You know, San Francisco is a fairly transient place. So a lot of, not a lot of native San Franciscans living in San Francisco right now here. So one of the issues we know in crisis, you got to know each other and particularly know who's, who's vulnerable. And so they started sponsoring with a small sort of grant block parties. Interesting. And the block parties have always so a public education component. They bring in, you know, preparedness piece, but just getting neighbors to know neighbors. And you know, there's no downside to that, right? I mean, there's only value that comes out of a community that knows each other. And yet, increasingly, we're isolated. We don't know our neighbors, and we certainly don't know those amongst us who have, may have special needs, who are older, infirmed, have medical issues that we would, if we knew, help. But, and, and what we know with major disasters is often not enough professionals to go around. So relying solely on the traditional emergency responder community is not gonna work for major event. It's gonna be all of us coming together. There are definite real barriers to resiliency. What, what, what are some of the things that we're seeing that are making this so hard for us to wrap our arms around? Sure, the barriers that we focus on, and there, there are many, but we, but we have them essentially in five buckets. And the first one I look at is what's called risk illiteracy. I can't get to be resilient if you think nothing's ever going to happen. Every day is going to be a blue sky day. And it's not, though, that I make you cognizant of risk, right? And we all know watching movies about hurricanes and earthquakes. We don't know how the risk will play out on things we value. And so it really is getting that micro level. If there is this incident, how will it affect you and the things you value? That's a very important. It's a big science problem to some extent and a social science because I can give you information, but if I don't change your behavior, right. I won't get you very right. far. Right? So that's the first barrier. The second is this one of design. We don't design for resilience. We design for efficiency. And that sometimes can be anti-resilient if not done right. So that's key. And that's an engineering challenge, an architectural challenge often on an asset base and a regional urban planning issue on an aggregate scale. And so we have to figure out how those communities come together. Okay, now we've got to understand designs. Nobody would do any of it if they don't have an economic incentive to adopt those designs, to do those best practices, to act on that. 
understanding. And that's where both market-based incentives, insurance, reinsurance, can be barriers or can be helpful, but mainly public policy barriers. You know, if the codes aren't kept up to date, they're built for a different hazard, you have to build by those codes, and now you've got another. Those are barriers to adopting the best designs. And the fourth one is governance. We're not organized in ways that allow us to see things as systems of systems. You know, we have bus people who won't talk to train people who won't talk to power people. You know, things are organized around usually siloed sectors, and within those sectors, there's subsectors. And it's very difficult often to get coordination across those, when the reality is, though, these are all systems, and they don't stay in a single city. You know, the mayor of Boston doesn't control all the water. It actually comes out from outside the city. He doesn't control the power. Power for the city of Boston uh, is often comes from Hydro-Quebec across our national border. That's where the, the primary source of generation is, and it has to come through the states of Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, you know, to come down to the city. So you go to the mayor and say, you gotta be resilient. Well, how does he do that if, so the governance issues are really key, and the heart of what we're focus, uh, focused on at Northeastern University is the education piece, the training piece. If we train people in silos, it's gonna be difficult for them to think in a collaborative way and uh, look for and understand. We can't be experts in everything, but what we can do is use our expertise to contribute to a broader conversation. And that happens by effective training and education to get people to really look at things through a system of systems perspective. Now, you, you uh, had a very interesting contribution on um, opportunity zones, which I think for most people is like, huh, what? <laughs> what, what is this? So tell us a little bit about that, that opportunity zones. I, don't, I would argue probably very few people even know what they are, that they exist. Sure. I mean, in terms of context, we've always been trying, often at the, particularly at the federal level, there's always been an attempt to try to stir economic development, particularly in underserved areas, whether that's to build infrastructure or build you know, hospitals, build schools, and so forth. Uh, states and locals, as in federal, have tried to figure out ways to essentially provide the resources to address the needs. And they've traditionally been pretty compartmentalized. You know, we'll do energy now, we'll do, we're into schools, we'll do, you know, uh, transit or whatever. And the reality, again, of a community is their systems are all together. So opportunity zones were embedded in legislation in the 2017 Tax Cut Act, where they created an incentive for basically investors, people who have capital gains, okay, they have property that they sold or the corporations that have generated profits, to instead of paying their taxes to the federal treasury, they can actually put them into a fund and invest them into underserved areas that were designated by governors. Right, these are essentially these zones, and there are 8,764 of them across the United wow. States. These are census tracts. Some of them are more than one together, but where the population is in the bottom quartile for need, and so from income standpoints and so forth. And so any investor who puts money into projects in those zones can, one, defer their capital gains payment. They don't have to write a check to the Treasury Department when they file their taxes. They can defer to 2026 paying their taxes and get a discount, but if they hold the investment for 10 years, then whatever uh, gains they make from the investment they, is tax-free. And so if, they, if it rises five-fold in value, uh, then all that gains is tax-free. For long-term investors, that sounds pretty appealing. And so what's going on right now is investment funds are being stood up to potentially invest in these opportunity zones, but what's not happening as quickly as one would like would be actual projects being put together in ways that are attractive to those investors. In many cases, because communities are just waking up, a key piece that we've been most involved with is the issues of infrastructure and the opportunities for private-public investment. So you could have a public grant to pull something up, and then you could end up with private 
capital coming in on top of that to get these projects funded. And in these underserved areas, we're going to need both private and public coming together. So there's a lot of information out there on opportunity zones, but unlike many other programs, there's nobody directly in charge. There's no federal agency in charge. Governors are kind of on their own to figure this out. That makes it a challenge. It does. But with, it really screens for leadership and the kind of leadership that you know, design builders bring collaboratively and coordinatedly, they can be, I think, a part of finding those projects to not just build them right, but actually bring the creative financing that's needed to get them done, particularly in the most vulnerable parts of our country. Let, let's talk a little bit about the role that universities play in all this. Sure. Well, it turns out uh, for Opportunity Zones, there are 1,400 universities and colleges that are located in Opportunity Zones. But more broadly, universities, of course, are anchor institutions in communities around our country. And they can also provide leadership on how we build a better world around us. When universities themselves have their own needs, obviously dormitories and classrooms and laboratories, incubators for startups and so forth. But we also all have a social, uh, social mission and so helping out our neighbors and being active involved with that. So the deep integration, ideally more with professionals, with the, uh, with, with the academics, with the students, will help us give the, the human capital we need to build this kind of world. And so at Northeastern University, with, with uh, our Global Resilience Institute, we want to work very closely with uh, corporations and companies and practitioners who are on the front line, both public and private, and bring our students into the mix, we build that human capital to ideally take this mission forward. And that's something that I know other universities are eager to do as well. So don't overlook your universities. They're, they are big assets, they're big capabilities. They just don't often connect as well as they might need to be connected to tackle these challenges in meaningful ways. We could truly talk about this for another hour. Where would people go if they want to find out more about resiliency and, and, and what Northeastern University is doing? Well, I would welcome folks coming to our website at the Global Resilience Research Institute at Northeastern University. And uh, you will find there we're both a resource about what's not just going on with our work, but we provide case study and best practices and links to other work that's going on. But there's a growing effort to, to do this. We've tried to create ourselves a little bit of a clearinghouse uh, for this effort. So just Google Global Resilience Research, uh, uh, Global Resilience Institute at Northeastern University and you'll find us, and I think you'll find a lot of information, and we're also inviting people to collaborate with us. Thank you so much. DBIA strives to be a resilient organization, nimble and responsive to our members' changing needs in these unprecedented times. And we wanted to be sure you know about some of our new resources as we navigate the weeks and months ahead. Sign up for our daily COVID and construction alert, which comes out in email every morning. We also hope you'll sign up for our newly revamped virtual learning courses, certification workshops, and custom training. They've all gone virtual with the same top-notch training from experienced design build experts you expect from DBIA. Now's the perfect time to continue your design build journey in preparation for the post-COVID recovery.